heard across the Resonate Regional Radio Network. It's my time, it's my life. I hope you will come along. This is Rural Queensland Today with Ben Dobbin. Hello and welcome to Rural Queensland Today, the 3rd of April, a Monday morning. A very good morning to everybody listening to us across the Resonate Broadcast Network. Good morning, Roma at 4ZR. 4SB in Kingaroy, 4VL in Charleville, 4HI in Emerald, 4LM Mount Isa, 4LG Longridge, 4GC Charters Towers and the Hot Country Network, good morning to you. So much to get through this morning and it's a huge, huge show for you this morning. We're going to talk with Mike Gear, and uh, I'm not convinced that we're not being conned by the government um, because there is a lot of crap going on and um, unfortunately at the moment AgForce, they are at the table but just where or whether or not we are getting played Time will tell. I'm going to also catch up with Samantha O'Toole, Belonshire Council Mayor. They are absolutely on their knees because of this water buyback, and if it happens to them, it's going to happen to you. Angus Gidley-Beard from Rabobank will catch up. There's been a horrific accident um, involving um, a, horse having, a horse having to be euthanised out of Springshaw on the weekend. I'm going to touch on that, give you the update on the rugby league results, and much, much more. It's a big show for you this morning, um, a, a really big show. I hope everybody sits back and enjoys it. If you've missed any of us, go to Spotify, uh, Rural Queensland Today with Ben Dobbin. You can get in contact with me anytime you like there. Or ben.dobbin at ruralqldtoday.com.au. Like us on the Facebook page. Lots to get through. It's Rural Queensland Today. It's Monday morning, the 3rd of April, across the Resonate Broadcast Network. Back to Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. It's the 3rd of April, Monday morning on Rural Queensland Today. Belonshire Mayor Samantha O'Toole joins us this morning. Uh, Sam, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us. It's wonderful to be here, Ben. I wish it was on a better topic. Yeah, this is quite unbelievable. Um, the Murray-Darling Basin uh, water plan quota um, is a real concern. Um, they is now uh, water purchasing tenders open under the Bridging the Gap initiative to buy another 49.2 gigalitres from irrigators to meet the Murray-Darling Basin Plan quota. Now, the Federal Department of Climate Change, Energy and Environment and Water is defending the process. Of course, they are. I can't believe that we're still going down this road. And this is detrimental to towns, but more, you know, to people's livelihoods. Um and they hide behind the desk and they hide behind the cloak of this big title, the Department of Climate Change, Energy and Environment and Water. And, it, you know, it, it, it's garbage. It's absolute garbage, Ben. And I think it shows that in the last decade, we haven't learned a single lesson along the way. You know, communities have been at the forefront of all these buybacks over the last few years. And we've done reports and study after study about the socioeconomic impact, but they're still coming out with the instrument that we know will cause the most damages to community and to businesses along the way. And that's with the straight out water purchase. So I just find it absolutely infuriating that we're back here again. Yeah. So, I mean... What, what, what are you guys being told and what are irrigators being told? There was many criticisms, Ed, you know, you know, in these consultations. But did they take any of the learnings or lessons from this at all? I don't feel that they did, Ben. Like I was in, at the St. George meeting that was held a oh, fortnight or so ago and it was an absolute box-ticking exercise. You know, the community brought up really fair, legitimate questions about a number of issues, including you know, temporary transfers and the and the uh, possible use of that going forward. 
And it was so scary that the department wasn't even aware, both the Chuo was there and the environmental department was there. They weren't aware that they had actually used that particular instrument multiple times in the past to achieve a very good environmental outcome at Naran Lakes. And I think this is through successive changes in their department, but it just blows the community away that the questions that we've been asking, they still can't answer. And they seem to be just heading down this road without any um, thought or consideration for the impact they're about to cause uh, and, and doing the water purchasing. And look, I recognize they've got a deadline of June 2024, but that's not the community's fault. And they seem to be throwing everything out the window just to get to that deadline. And it, it yeah, it's scary it's, and it's really frustrating. So what happens now? There's no regard for the socioeconomic impact it's going to cause on the community. That's the thing that I don't understand. Like you guys have shown them uh, and as the Boulonshire Council has also spoken to them, but they don't actually care. Um, They don't seem to care. And it's easy to make these decisions when we've had record seasons. Let's see what it's like. Let's see what it's like when we go back to dry times. And there hasn't been a flood. This is the thing that I absolutely despise about this government at the moment is they make decisions on the fly in good times instead of looking at the impact long term and the impact it has on a community when this season isn't a normal season. We've had an extraordinary long flow down the condomine balloon system. I think in 2022, we had a, almost a record cease to flow event, which was pretty extraordinary. So like you say, we're in good times at the moment, but... The, you know, the money we're talking that's about to be removed from our community, like today, you know, the water that they've taken already, the 86 gigs, it's about 100 to $150 million per year um, out of the St. George, Durham, Bandy communities. Are you serious? Water going, that uh, is... 100%, Ben. So how do you make that up? I mean, and this is, if this is happening in your town, it's happening in other towns, how do you make that up? There seems to be no consideration for the socioeconomic impact. I mean, I was in Minister Plebiscic's office last week in Canberra. And I said to her, have you thought about, you know, how you're going to structurally change these communities through? And unfortunately for Boulogne, and I know Gundawindi would be similar, but we don't have oil and gas or any other diversification. So we are agriculture. And it is so important for us to retain every single drop of water that's in our shire. And this the water that's going to come out now through this purchase, you know, they're targeting 14 gigs in the Condomine Boulogne system. We're probably talking between another 25 to 25 uh, 25 to $50 million per year of economic activity that's about to be drugged from our communities in the Boulogne Shire with no regard. And they have no answers. They haven't even considered socioeconomic impact on our community and how they're going to support us. And I just, like I walked out of that meeting in Canberra last week just shaking my head and I was completely infuriated that they're just going to decimate us and they don't give a rat's ass. Yeah, and, and that's it. So Tanya Plibersek, who she she's causing a lot of this, and make no mistakes, did she at least acknowledge, like, Sam, you're a very fair person. You get it and you get that you've got to give to get back. You you absolutely get it and you've done that for your town. Could she see at least what you were saying? There was no, con- you know, recognition of the impact they were about to consider and there was no thought they had no offerings as far as how they would structurally adjust us going forward. So I feel they haven't listened at all to the community and they haven't even listened to their own reports. And they've done multiple reports in the past, Ben, about what the socioeconomic impacts are of water recovery. You know, they, Murray Darling Basin Authority did their own in 2016. They had Robbie Sefton do an independent report only a handful of years ago and they're still not taking to regard any of those information that has been provided. So no compassion, 
no consideration for the community. And I suppose that's been the Boulanchard's fight all along. It's about the people and the businesses that sit in our communities and trying to support them through the change that's occurring. Yeah, and that's the thing. So, so, so David Littleproud, um, you know, he's described it as ripping away communities. We know that. The National Irrigators Council is outspoken critic of the structure of tender. They're saying it, it, it's barbaric. Um, they're saying, you know, it, it, it's, it's not right. Yet we've got a government that's just hell-bent. This, this seems very much like, very much like, what happened with the land clearing? Uh, uh, have Ag Force or any of these peak body groups come, got involved yet? I haven't spoken to them. I have spoken to the Irrigators Association. I suppose the other thing that people really need to understand is about the structure of the tender, and I think that's one of the things that the Irrigators Association is out speaking about. For anybody that's considering you know, purchasing water at the moment, they need to read the fine print of the tender and realise that the government will have up till May next year for a callback. So my real cynical point of view of this, Ben, is also we've got a number of SDL projects that are due in the southern part of the basin by June 2024. And there is a number of those that are questionable about being achieved at this stage. And that's the 605 gigalitre number we hear battered around a lot. And that's a southern basin number. But if they can't get to that number by next year and they're holding an option for tender until May 2024, I suspiciously think that they'll come back and exercise some of those options in the Northern Basin to reach their 605 number. And that is really concerning. So I just deplore people to read the documents, to really consider this and to consider the communities that are going to be impacted along the way. Yeah, horrific. We're going to follow this up because there's got to be some accountability. Um, You know, the kind of economic and socioeconomic effect that this could have on the Boulanchire alone and also downstream as well, uh, it it just cannot be um, taken for granted. Thank you so much for being with us. No doubt uh, on the wrong circumstances. Enjoy the cooler change, Samantha, Um, and um, look, we'll talk again shortly. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate you having an opportunity to have a talk to you about this today. Good on you. We'll take a break, come back with more. This is Rural Queensland today. It's Monday morning, the 3rd of April, and isn't that just an absolute kick in the guts for the people of the Boulanchire? Just unbelievable. And everybody downstream, and Tanya Plibersek, we know exactly who she is. We know exactly she hides behind it and says it's for the environment and this is their ideologies. This is what we voted for, unfortunately, and we have now got a real problem on our hands. We'll take a break, come back with more. Welcome back to Rural Queensland today. Um, look, a lot's going on over the course of the weekend. I'll give you an update as we speak, but I did want to start. This was reported in The Country Life. I saw it late last night. Um, Campgrass Stallion, IndianaDestinies.com, euthanized after a Springshaw hit and run. That was the headline. And police are seeking information on an incident that occurred after midnight on the Saturday morning that has resulted in a stallion being euthanised. Now, this is unbelievable. Now, a car travelling north on West Street left the road around 12.15am on April the 1st and crashed into a set of portable panels that the six-year-old stallion was contained in. Now, this is being reported, and and I've made some phone calls last night, and this is a horrific situation. The horse was later euthanised, and the incident is under investigation. The stallion, indianasdestiny.com, belonged to well-known alpha camp-drafting couple Peter Black and Leanne Comiskey. It was purchased at Tamworth two years ago. Now, they were taking part in the Springshore Working Horse Association's annual camp-drafting cutting fundraiser. Now, if anybody who knows that location, they were just parked and camped right there 
uh, beside the bitumen uh, road running past the grounds. So it goes right along there. We know, I know that area very, very well. The horse was in the portable panels and tied to the couple's truck. When they were woken uh, just after midnight on Saturday morning to the truck shaking. How bloody horrifying is that? Unbelievable. They thought the horse had, had his, um, been tangled up in his robe anyway. Um, absolutely had been hit. Uh, there's no brake marks. The car just missed the truck parked in front of us and the stallion's uh, rear hocked had been smashed in the incident. An X-ray by the vet the following morning confirmed uh, the diagnosis and the horse was put down. Um, th- this is a horrific situation. The horse was leading the Australian Campdraft Association rookie competition was holding second place in the novice competition. It, 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 is, it, it is a hard, hard situation, this one, and our thoughts are with um, the couple and the horse, Peter Black and Leanne Comiskey. Th- that is a dreadful, dreadful situation, and look, the worst part about it is um, that somebody has to own that. Somebody has to own that they have obviously been involved in an incident and you know what, instead of driving off, they need to probably and do the right thing and make their way to the police. It could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse but a horse being hit and having to be euthanised at the Springshaw campdraft and um, cutting working horse cutting fundraiser is not on. It sickens me. It actually sickens me um, that, that, that that happened. And I'm really, really, really angry and I know somebody will know something. Very, very disappointed. And you know what? I think that maybe, just maybe, um, there might be something, some more retribution, and, and they might change it. Uh, the Winton Way Out West Festival, um, obviously, it, you know, took place over the course of the weekend, and um, it was a big couple of days. Um, obviously, huge crowds out there, and you know what? That that's what Winton does so well, and it was a, a huge crowd on show to make sure that you know everybody was there. Interesting enough, though. It, you know, the bull riding was good, the bands were good, the biggest thing, the bikes were unbelievable, the crowd was just out of control. The biggest thing about it is that the Wintonshire Council have just done such a um, phenomenal uh, phenomenal um, job in trying to get tourists there and trying to get um, locals there. It, it is unheard of what, what has gone on in that town and how they've grown it. And it's a really great lesson for a lot of people who are interested in how to grow their town, you know, and where to go and what to do, um, you know, and that's that's the biggest thing. Um, and and the, the thing about it is, you know, it, it, it always makes it very, very interesting to see how these towns that are proactive go forward. The way out west, Winton, Westerful, bad results, um, Donovan Rutherford, he, he came first um, and then you had Macaulay Letter, uh, Riley Ward in third, Lachlan Richardson uh, in sixth, uh, Aaron Clare in f- fourth and fifth. So some good results there. First Donovan Rutherford, 
Um, he had 172 points. So he takes home 18,000. Um, a lot of people um, had no score, um, but there were some really good results there. Um, and and um, so well done to Donovan Rutherford. Um, and he, he absolutely, from Mount Isa, uh, at 23 years of age, winning the Winton Way Out West Festival. So that's he, that's great for him. And um, he needs that. This is his first year pro and uh, he's had a really, really good year uh, doing that. The Rugby League results, obviously, over the weekend, if you're a uh, Rugby League supporter, the Cowboys getting beaten last night at the back end. And, I, I mean, I can't split them. Let's talk we, – we talked about the Roosters on Friday, but – uh, Penrith flexed their muscles, 53 points to 12. Um, and then the Storm were too good for the Rabbitohs, 18-10. Saturday, it was a draw, 32-all, Manly and the Knights. Then we saw the Dragons give the Dolphins a good old-fashioned flogging, 38-12. And Brisbane now, who sit top of the table, 46 points to 12 over the West Tigers. 32-30, the Warriors to beat the Sharks. What good football this is. And then the Bulldogs, 15, defeated the Cowboys, 14 uh, the Bulldogs 15, Cowboys 14. Um, that happened in the last minute of the game in uh, extra point. Like it was unbelievable and that is a huge result for them. So the competition as we speak and the Tigers are yet to have a win. Um, the Raiders sit second last, Parramatta sit 15th, Cowboys, Rabbitohs, Sharks, Knights, Dragons and the Titans. That makes it out the eight. Now the eight at the moment, Brisbane lead the competition on uh, 10 points, they haven't had a loss yet. The Warriors in second, Roosters third, Seagulls fourth, Storm, Dolphins, Broncos, Panthers. And that makes up the uh, top eight for uh, what has been an unreal round five. Round six goes to the Easter weekend and we'll keep you updated with that. This is Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Welcome back to Rural Queensland today. We'll stay with this sort of line um, after talking to Samantha O'Toole. Uh, Mike Gear and AgForce CEO joins us. The Queensland Government has released its Low Emissions Ag Roadmap, which sets out the role the industry will likely play in reaching the state's 2050 net zero emissions targets. There is, um, th- there's a lot to, to unpack about this, and, and it's clearly not locked in as yet, but there's been a lot of uh, co-designing approach with this. Um, Mike, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Um, I, I, I'm I'm questioning all, lots of it because we don't know the full full length of it. But you have been involved in this. I have. Good morning, Dover. From the start, for the last two years, uh, Ag Force and others from industry involved in what you describe as co-design. There's some really important foundations to this, Dover. Firstly. Since 1995, as you and I and a lot of your listeners know, the agricultural industry has reduced their emissions by 58%. That's a fact. It's on the public accounts, so it can't be argued with. 58%. No other industry in Australia has done has anything near that. Um, very few have provided any new emissions reductions. And although we haven't done that by seeking to reduce emissions, We've done that by building a more productive agriculture industry, by bringing in new technology, by thinking about different genetics. So the first thing is it is critical that everybody understands that the agriculture industry, in terms of lowering net emissions, has done the heavy lifting anyway and can do more. The second thing is, whether it be the vegetation debate or the reef debate, or those debates where industry feels felt like, reasonably felt like they haven't been at the table and haven't had an influence and therefore 
the policy settings are wrong and hurtful to communities. You need to be at the table from the start of the conversation. So we got invited in two years ago. The final form of the low emissions roadmap is very different because industry's been there from the start. It recognises that we've played the biggest part of any industry in Australia in reducing net emissions. It recognises we can do more by proactively working together. And it recognises really importantly that things like punitive emissions taxes, like have now been put on New Zealand for every room and animal you run, is not the way forward. It's about incentives and working together. So we will not see, if this government is true to its word, taxes, punitive impositions, and more red and green tape around emissions, we will see us working together, thinking proactively about opportunities, about investments, about new technology. And that's the shift we think we've got from this government. That's a very important one, given what we see going on globally. Yeah, well, globally in some areas, not every not every country is embracing this. But the Palaszczuk government has joined now, you know, with Mark Ferner and was hoping to provide clarity. Do you feel that there's clarity? Because... Do we know the frameworks around livestock emissions? Do we do we know that? Like, this is what I don't understand. And I understand the car, ca- carbon farming. I understand all that. I understand we just talked with Samantha O'Toole about this ridiculous buyback um, in the Boulogne that's going to have – and it's crippling their economic community. Like, it, it, we're talking billions of dollars in that area. But do we do we understand exactly what this framework looks like? We understand exactly what we're dealing with, Dobbo, and that is uh, a globe and a world and a set of conversations at various levels which don't put the producer at the centre of the conversation where they deserve to be and where they have something to add. We're seeing things sliced off piece by piece. You talk about carbon. Carbon is one small part of natural capital. It is one small part of the landscapes of which landholders look after. There's all the other ones go with it as well. So what Force and others have done, but what industry has done since the veg debate in 17 is sit down and make sure that we can restart the conversation in a way that puts industry in the right part of the conversation and rebuild. So for example, on carbon, we've built something called Ag Care. And Ag Care provides a producer at a property level with their whole natural capital portfolio. So then if someone comes up the drive and offers them a carbon trade, they understand the implications of that not only for their carbon balance on property, but for all of their natural capital assets. So can they make conscious decisions within business planning over multiple years about how they deal with that. They also know if the carbon trader comes up the drive and says you've got $2 worth of carbon, they know whether that's true or whether they've got $3. They know how it relates to the biodiversity on property. That piece of work is another piece alongside the lower emissions roadmap where a number of members, a number of producers in Queensland and others have spent the last few years building from the bottom back up again. So again, we will not have these punitive emissions targets like our taxes, should I say, they've been put in New Zealand. And this very important conversation led by the Nature Repair Bill out of the Federal Parliament from um, uh, Minister Plibersek will be talked about and engaged with in a way that's proactive and positive rather than sitting back and waiting for the draft legislation before we get involved. And the vegetation debate was a classic, where people like WWF were involved for two years before we knew it was even being drafted. This time, we're at the table. There's some tough conversations, Kevin Dobbo, and it sounds like Sam touched on this morning, but we are at the table from the start of the conversation, and we have to be. 
Mike, what I'm hearing from producers and your members is a fear that we're going down a road where we will end up having and being told about stocking rates. That's the that, that's the the long term the long term spin from this government. We look at all this kind of stuff where we look at we it's like a formula. They look at you know carbon and they look at the emissions and then they say right this is your land and this is your stocking rate. Now I, I, people close to to me have said that that has been broached by the government. Now I understand you guys have position, but surely that has been shot down by by AgForce and other groups that are in this stream that know that that's where it's heading. Robert, absolutely shot down. Your words are perfectly right. It's another example, like the missions attacks in New Zealand, of a punitive, narrowly focused, poorly thought through policy, which is being introduced in parts of Europe to limit livestock numbers. And for those decisions to be made, by bureaucrats who don't understand the landscape. So what we're talking about, in fact, I'm on the road at the moment, I'm in two times this morning, two weeks talking to members saying, we must lean into this conversation. We can be guaranteed we'll start getting these punitive things like limits on livestock numbers if we sit back and don't engage. If we're not in the room having that tough conversation, we may not win this way, dollar, but we'll have a damn good go at it. In my view, my biased opinion is we will win because we have a marvellous story to tell. Back to the low emissions roadmap and what you talk about is coming at us. If we had not been in that room, they would not have even recognised the 58% reduction in net emissions that this industry has provided sure. this country since sure. 1995. So when it comes to limiting livestock numbers, you know whether it's ag care that ag force has produced or whether it's something else, producers need to tell their story. Ruminant animals contribute to the carbon cycle. They don't take from it. 84% of Queensland's landscape is good for nothing other than ruminant animal production and has been for tens of thousands of years, more laterally with cows. All of those conversations need to be had. The fear is right because elsewhere in the world we see it going in the wrong direction. In Australia, through AgForce and others, we are at the table, proactively engaging and doing everything possible to ensure this fantastic industry and these awesome communities across Queensland that put fresh food on our supermarket shelves seven days a week, 365 days a year, aren't punished like they're being overseas. It's tough, Dobbo. It's a hard conversation, but we have half a chance, and we have some amazing leaders in this industry who are spending an inordinate amount of time working with government. The Low Emissions Roadmap is one of those examples. I'd like to ask you, and honestly, uh, all that is great, and I believe and I absolutely commend you because I do believe that if we're not there, we get screwed. But in the end, we saw it with the vegetation management scheme and how they went about that. Surely, you know, there has to be some trepidation that you are concerned that no matter what we do, they're going to make that decision anyway. And it's almost barbaric and illegal. We saw it with freehold land. We've seen this. History will show countless. And they're hiding behind, and we saw it with the reef regulations. Now, if you talk to Dr. Peter Reid, you know, the reef's never been healthier, yet we can't even get anything. It, it, we're, we're vandals of the reef, whether or not you live in Winton or whether or not you live at Harvey Bay. Like there's no, there's no in any way reality to it. So all this that you're talking about, Mike, and I agree with you 100% and I genuinely do, but do we honestly believe that they're listening? Like do, they, do we honestly believe that, that they actually can see it? No, it just seems that they're ticking a box by having you there. Dobber, the trepidation is real. Are they listening to us? 
we're in front of them whichever way they turn. Whichever way they turn the head, we're back there in front of them. We're at every conversation. Um, it, it, it is, I believe, the next few years, Dobbo, will be a moment in time that we look back on in history as the moment this industry shone or we got sunk like the rest of the world seems to be doing with all of this punitive stuff that's going on. It is a critical moment. It's an incredibly powerful moment. And there is a chance that it will go the wrong way. All I can say to producers is join Ag Force in Queensland, get them behind this conversation. The next two or three years, given the nature repair bill that's coming in the federal parliament, given that 30% of land that they're arguing is going to be subsumed back in the public ownership, given all of the things that are being talked about, alongside us having a different conversation, and the Low Emissions Roadmap is the first example of it, and I'll acknowledge state government for that, now is the moment. We have an amazing, powerful, and strong industry. Get behind your industry body. Give us a chance to have a go. And I think we'll win. I'm a born optimist, but win, lose, or draw, this is the moment where we have to give it everything we've got. Yeah, well said. Mike Gearan, appreciate your time on this Monday morning. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Dolly. Good on you. We'll take a break, come back with more. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Uh, Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Welcome back to Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. It's Monday morning, the 3rd of April. Um, Rabobank Senior Animal Protein Analysis, Angus Gidley-Beard, joins us this morning. Hello, mate. How are you? Good, thanks, Ben. Yourself? Really well. Um, And look, it's always interesting to have these conversations with you because from um, the research that that you guys have been doing and looking at, um, the boost in Brahmin cattle supply because of the dry season mustering in the north, um, you know, after Easter, it it is expected that we're going to see a decline in rates for live exports animals. You know, the only factor that we probably haven't, you know, factored in has been that flooding that, you know, there might be a little bit of a shortage, but you do know that this time of the year, and the way things are going, we are going to see um, the live export job cheapen up just a fraction, which does have a snowball effect. Yeah, it does. It does. And <clears throat> live export prices are probably, I mean, they're, they're reflecting some of the domestic cattle prices as well, which we've seen decline since the end or late last year. So a lot of those uh, cattle in, in Queensland there have had the option of going either way, whether it go onto live on the boats for live export or, or down south into some of the feedlot operations. But yeah, no, you're right. The um, the normal the normal process would be the first round musters are starting now or shortly. We start to see a volume of, of cattle come onto the market, and it does naturally sort of push the prices down a little bit. But as you said, good good volumes of rain across the north um, probably going to hold up some of those first round musters for a little while. We yeah. might just see a little bit of a delay. It's it, it's almost a dollar cheaper than. Christmas time now at the moment for the quotes out of Darwin. What, what are the factors that cause that? I, I, I mean, I understand it just, it just can't all be dry weather. It, obviously, on the market, you know, there is a glut of, of, of cattle at the present moment. Uh, yeah, no, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a glut. The, the prices were extremely overinflated though last year, and I think everyone in the industry recognises that they had to come back a bit. We've seen similar falls for. Domestic cattle here, they've dropped in the order of 40-odd percent since this time last year. So um, it, it is quite a dramatic drop, but still historically high. So um, it was just super inflated before. Um, you know, the the reason or, or contributing factors, obviously, as we said, you know, there are a few more cattle coming onto the market. We definitely see that, although live export numbers haven't really started to pick up. Um, there are a few more boats going, as I heard, but a lot of them sort of smaller boats too. 
um, just trying to manage some of those numbers into Indonesian feedlots where they're still confronted with FMD and, and things like that. So there's a disease risk there um, that they're just trying to manage. You don't want to get a whole lot of cattle in and suddenly find that they're all infected and, and you have to dispose of them. So they're managing that. We've also got Australian domestic cattle volumes dropping as well. Uh, oh, sorry, domestic prices dropping as well. So that's just taken the pressure off some of those live export prices. And, and to be honest, you know, there are a number of them live exporters Feedlotters here in Australia processes are probably just sort of sitting on the sidelines, letting the prices drift a little bit lower to try and overcome some of the some of the challenges that they had last year, um, with a, probably a fair bit more red in in the ledger. Can I ask you this? And I and I say this. Um, you, you spoke recently at the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association conference, and and you made a, a very very interesting um, observation that you know we shouldn't be of the belief that the Southeast Asian countries don't have the same interest in sustainability as the likes of Europe and Australia. Um, for too long we've thought, and it, it can be from extremists, um, you know, and, and, and certain areas of the media that have tried to to highlight and say that, that they are very barbaric, but you're of the belief, and, and I certainly am, that, that, that they are very much on the same page as where we're heading. Yeah, definitely. And it was, uh, it was a result of a survey done by Bain and Company that was, was a global survey asking a series of questions around sustainability. And, and, um, you know, it was, it was interesting that those Southeast Asian nations, you know, that they didn't have sustainability as a major concern. Um, but it was the same as, as the responses that they got out of other markets, such as Australia. Um, I think it was, oh, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but, an equivalent number of consumers that were surveyed in those Southeast Asian nations had concerns around sustainability similar to, to, to the Australian market. So um, it's not that it's not a problem over there. It definitely is, is something that the consumers are working on, but there, there are other factors too that are still quite important in that market. But yeah, it is interesting to note. It's not something that we can think, oh, Southeast Asia, they're not too worried about it. We don't have to worry about changing for, for them. There are consumers there that are starting to look Towards sustainability for their purchase decisions. What about box meat over to the uh, Southeast Asia? I mean, I understand that the wet markets are that they're a strong part of their fabric, but you'd think that box meat might grow a little bit more as well. Um, and if that does, that's going to open up them, you know, shopping us around a little bit, and it brings in other nations who could supply the Southeast Asia. It, it does definitely, and. Yeah, I mean, you referenced my presentation at the Northern Territory Cattlemen's. There were three things that I noted. One was um, was the, that movement around sustainability. The other one was the development of supply chains in that area. And, and supply chains, when I talk about it, it's it's you know cold chains as well, um, but also infrastructure that that flows around it. So you know, natural development is that you move from a, a, a sort of localized wet market style operation into a more developed sort of retailing store um, type development. We can see it in similar markets uh, in in Asia as well. China's seen a large increase in in the number of bricks and mortar retail type stores, um, replacing some of those wet markets. So there, there is a natural progression and development in that space. And as that moves forward, that will facilitate more box meat trade. Um, because you can bring it into a port and then distribute it through that supply channel. Um, whereas at the moment, you know, the live cattle going in there, they provide the advantage of having a, a fresh meat source that doesn't have to be stored in a cold cold freezer. Um, so I, I think there'll be a natural progression, definitely, towards the de- development of those supply chains, which will lend itself to, to increased box meat trade. 
Um, Australian box meat trade to, to Indonesia is quite good. We're one of the, the largest suppliers in, into that market, but we have seen more recently um, with some of the concerns around supply into that market, you know, Indonesian officials have travelled to Brazil to try and identify or, or open up trade routes. We've also seen Indian buffalo, obviously, flowing into really? that market. Really? Is that, is well. that a thing? Could that, could that make a, a way into the southeast? The Brazilian buffalo. product? Yeah, the buffalo, the, you know. Uh, yeah, we are definitely seeing increased volumes of buffalo into into Indonesia. They opened up the trade a couple of years ago, and as a result, we've, we've started to see larger volumes. Last year, we saw a 32% increase in volumes. This is according to Indian buffalo, uh, Indian official stats, 32% increase in volume um, and over the 100,000 ton mark, which is the, the volume, the quota that was actually set by the Indian, Indonesian officials last year. So um, they are starting to, to pull a bit more volume out of that market, uh, that India market. Um, but I, I think that's, you know, we, we should look at it as, uh, as, from an Australian point of view, you should look at that as, as a competitor in the market, but also identify the things that, um, you know, we can try and distinguish ourselves from in, in that space. So, you know, whether it's quality, whether it's reliability, whether it's food safety, um, price is going to be a little bit more difficult to compete on. But, um, you know, we should look to, to see what's driving the motivation behind that that sourcing of that product. Yeah, well said. Um, very, very interesting what's going to happen in the next couple of uh, months. And we'll talk to you later in the year just about the impact that ha- happens and when it does dry out, where this job ends up. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Really appreciate your time. Not a problem, Ben. Always good to chat. Thank good you. you. We'll take a break, come back with more. This is Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Well, that's it from us here this morning at Rural Queensland Today on this Monday morning, the 3rd of April. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're going to be back tomorrow morning from 9. It's a four-day week for us. Uh, good Friday on this Friday and obviously Easter Monday next week as well. Have a great, great day. And remember, when the weed is ripe, keep the headers rolling in the paddock. We'll catch up again shortly. This is Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Stay safe on the roads. Till next time from all the team here at Rural Queensland Today. It's bye for now.